Indian society is designed to meet the needs of certain kinds of bodies over others that are deemed disabled. This is made clear in multiple ways, right from how buildings are designed to the types of appearances that are idealized. However, there are important ways in which people with disabilities have contested attempts to sideline their rights. I'm your host Abhishek, and this week on Research Radio, we'll speak to Renu Adlaka about women with visual disabilities and the women's movement. We'll also discuss how medical and legal systems inform our understanding of disability. Dr. Adlaka is with the Center for Women's Development Studies, or CWDS, in New Delhi. She's published several articles in EPW about the topics that we'll be discussing today, and I've shared links to two in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Renu. Thank you for having me. So, could we start by discussing what made you interested in researching about disability, and particularly about the experience of women with disabilities? It was not something that emerged uh, spontaneously. It was actually in itself a journey, because I have visual impairment and have been negotiating it in various ways in my life. Things were very different when I was born and in the 70s and 80s and even 90s. So it was still kind of a marginal issue in general, unless you were affected by it. And when you were affected by it, you dealt with it as a private matter. It was not a public issue and one was very hesitant to engage with it. Although now one sees many disabled people working on disability at that time when I was growing up, it was not so uh, normal and natural. So there was a certain avoidance built into uh, one's experience of it and one's engagement with it. And hence, I didn't engage with it for a long time. My PhD was actually on looking at uh, mental illness among women. It was a PhD in sociology, but I wanted to look at the social construction of mental illness. And um, I only actually began engaging with it uh, in the mid between 2004. And that was actually the point when I began when I uh, was unemployed and it was a fellowship. The MacArthur Fellowship on Sexuality, Gender, and Reproductive Health. And I wanted to really get it. And I picked it up the topic of disability and sexuality as and reproductive health. And I got the fellowship. And that was actually what my began as my journey. By the time that I was already 40 and mature enough to actually handle the issue both epistemically and experientially. So you can see that a lot of my engagement with disability has, can be looked in a historical way in terms of the emergence of the disability category in academia and public domain, as well as, as my own lifespan and my own engagement with my identity as a, as a female with disability. Mm-hmm. And I'd actually like to know more about the historical trajectory of disability uh, that you focused on. In one of the EPW articles, you've written that, quote, instead of giving rights to persons with disabilities and empowering them, a culture of charity and welfare has been systematically promoted in India since the colonial period, end quote. Could you tell us more about this culture and m- maybe how it has shifted in more recent years? 
you know that philanthropy, charity, these are all uh, conceptual categories that emerge in, the, in religion. During the colonial period, we had whole world of missionary medicine and the whole idea of the civilizing mission of the so-called uncivilized by the colonizers. And within that discourse, there was a way in which impairment, which emerged as a kind of um, both a medical category that there was a certain human range of human capacities of sense organs in terms of sight or hearing or in terms of mental cognition and there was a certain stand there was a standardization of these uh, faculties and those who departed from them were uh, impaired if they were in a deficient kind of way or they were exceptional they were geniuses if they exceeded it so that like if your hearing uh, was higher than uh, the normal human range it was exceptional it was not a disability but if it was less you were disabled you were impaired so there's a whole history of disability poor laws charity the, the church which emerged in the western context uh, from the medieval ages and some of those uh, ideas and institutions like schools for the deaf schools for the blind the asylums they were transplanted into the colonized territories and uh, after independence a lot of those added ideas were carried forward and you know that even schools for the deaf and the blind are still there they have not been wound up as such and none of the mental asylums have that were established uh, during the British period have been closed in India although they've taken on more clinical uh, facets and become more like hospitals standard hospitals so that was the kind of discourse and stereotypes around what disability is and what is what are who are these disabled people and many times they do that people with disabilities do require assistance they do require some some enablers and hence there's this whole domain of specialness you know it's like special education I mean, they're more requiring maybe other kinds of requirements which the majority do not require, but they're considered special. I mean, that's kind of also a patronizing way of saying, you know, that they they're different. So, but specialness kind of sugarcoats the bitterness of disability. So these are the, the ideas that have uh, been with us for aeons. They continue to be with us if you talk to people in general population. And unfortunately, even medical practitioners who are, have to deal with people with disabilities, these stereotypes and negative understandings continue to persist. Yes, yes. That helps to understand the origins of uh, this notion of charity and uh, benevolence. So switching gears a bit, you've underscored the need for the disability rights movement to prioritize sexual rights and women's rights alongside rights to access education, healthcare, housing and more. And employment. And employment. When in a family there's a woman with a disability, uh, as I've already tried to kind of explain, her marital chances diminish. 
Now, as a compensation, many women with disabilities, and this has all gone from my generation, so it's not something very new, and their families realize the need for economic self-reliance for women with disabilities, particularly if they are middle-class families. And then, in many cases, there is an added emphasis on education and employment by the family and by the woman herself, because that is her survival mechanism mechanism given that marriage is not a sort of trinity. So um, that's where the, uh, the situation of women with disabilities becomes a bit different from women without disabilities is that in many cases there's an overriding emphasis on education and the need for employment. But the reality is that the, the drop out from educational institutions and the employment rate is very low for women with disabilities. But surprisingly, if you take women with disabilities and women without disabilities, you will find that in some cases, the employment rate for women with disabilities is marginally higher than for women without disabilities precisely for the reason that I've cited it. Uh, yes, so employment becomes doubly important as well. And along with that, in the article, you've also you know mentioned that, quote, disabled persons are expected to reject their bodies as asexual, end quote. Why is it that sexual rights and women's rights are less prioritized? And maybe how has this landscape shifted? given the interventions by scholars like yourself and others. These were moments, as in most domains of life, that were initiated by and dominated by and driven by men with disabilities. So when it was men with disabilities and the overriding importance of economic factors in the lives of men, the emphasis both in the West and in India, and even now I would say in the disability rights movement in India, there is an over-presence and dominance of men. And uh, the agenda is very much by driven by those concerns and taking in, in sexuality and reproductive health and these kind of things. They are, you know, in the hierarchy of needs, in the hierarchy of uh, advocacy concerns. In from the male viewpoint, they are considered secondary. So that's one very important factor and you know you know that men's rights movements that have now spawned are actually I mean some call it a backlash to the feminist movement whatever it is the concern with men's sexuality is a and, and, and one has to also look at the fact of the role of the gay rights movement and um, what that impact that has had in opening up the issue of sexuality. But one can say that 
sexuality has been a secondary concern for men in general but within the feminist movement because of the overriding issues of reproduction and women's bodies as bodies of procreation and women's roles in the family the importance of the institution of motherhood and child rearing these are concerns that have been central in women's lives and that is why the feminist movement is also very actively and from its inception engaged with sexuality so in that sense if we take the disability rights movement taking that template into account um one strand which has been dominated by men preoccupied itself and continues to do so with education and employment and the other strand which is more influence more in conflation with the women's rights movement though we do have something called feminist disability studies and feminist disability rights movement but they are sub segments largely within the women and gender rights movement and they have people like nidhi goel younger person but very much in the sexuality kind of frame and they are engaging and actually the ideal scenario would be that to come together and uh, i do see that happening in the not so distant future simply because the donors for both these um, different strands are very often similar donors right right and and i'm curious about this how effective can laws and policies you know such as the rights of persons with disabilities act of 2006 how effective can they be in furthering the disability rights movement as you we know from the women's rights movement in india law has been fundamental i mean whether it's dowry sati child marriage age of marriage okay now one may have a disagreement that what's the point of making laws half of which cannot and are not implemented and you don't create the appropriate apparatus uh, for awareness so that the affected persons and every affected person is aware and able to access the law that's another debate but law has been a central tool for empowerment in our society you know a lot of our legislation different laws particularly family laws laws related to property and inheritance are discriminatory against persons with disability particularly people with mental illness you know i mean for example laws that debarred people with who were mentally challenged from voting or from inheritance or you know marriage being annulled these laws are still on the statute books or though the 1995 law and the more recent 260 216 law prohibit this but they are still part of other laws and actually there's a crying need for a total overhaul of 
all those legal clauses which come in conflict with more recent disability legislation and i'm very surprised that this process has not even been initiated i mean it to me it stands defies logic why at one level you're enacting one set of laws empowering anti discrimination and yet the other provisions still remain why should that be the case and now another thing that i'd like to just bring that the confused state of affairs that although some of the legal provisions that are anti discriminatory for and and uh, really go against provisions that are there in the new legislation disability legislation there are some positive changes for example in the 2013 criminal law amendment act it's what it's a kind of women friendly law but there are provisions for addressing violence against women with disabilities you know whether it's that you have to have a sign you have to have a inter appropriate interpretation or the, the FIR can be filed at the, any place where the woman chooses and accessibility has to be ensured to the victim so these are and that if the woman is a disabled who has been violated the quantum of punishment is increased so the these are disability specific provisions in non disability legislation but they coexist with the earlier provisions which are so anti discriminatory so clearly all existing laws need to be probed uh, and amended to ensure that the rights of people with disabilities are safeguarded and uh, dwelling deeper into the framing of policies you observe that these laws usually frame disability as a personal tragedy or as an individual problem which should be evaluated and compensated in select situations why is this a convenient but inaccurate description of the problem very often a person with disability is on their own for example when i was growing up in my school i was uh, the only very often i was the only disabled person and definitely in my class i was the only disabled person in my workplace i am the only disabled person right now so there is a certain isolation that develops when it's disability ngos are a location where people with disabilities gather together like schools for the deaf school for the blind there you have groupings but i am large disability is an individual experience it is often an individual life and an effort has to be made to bring in the group dynamics that is you know unless there's a family in which there's a genetic thing going and there's several people with disabilities that also happens at times but by and large it's an individual thing and medical medicine looks at disability as a, a problem of the individual body or mind and the disabled person more as a patient and being a patient hence it also a kind of tragedy because you're on your own in this particular condition so there is this individualization of disability and historically that's how disabled people have been that you know it's your fault maybe or it's your fate whatever way you want to look at it you were you, you know it's your karma that's one way 
But actually, if we look at people, now this is where the disability rights movement from the 1970s came. They said, we reject this medical model of disability. We do not want to look at disability as a personal tragedy, as an individual issue, as a medical problem. We don't want to look at the disabled person as a patient because that's not the only truth. The truth is that it is society which isolates, identifies, labels, differentiates, and normalizes and abnormalizes. There is disableism in society and there is ableism in society. Society is in favor of the able-bodied, that is the majority, and society is negatively disposed toward the disabled, which is disableism. And actually, we have to recognize disability as just something which is social. It's because you don't have a ramp that I can't come to your office because you only have stairs, right? It's because you don't have um, you know, sign language interpretation that I'm deaf. It's because you don't provide me screen reading software that, and everything is available only in small print and no braille that I am blind. So you address the special or the specific concerns that I am facing and that can be addressed socially through social organization, through building, through technology, make society accessible. It's because society is not accessible that I am experiencing disability in my life. And it's also your attitudes and your stereotypes which are, are inhibiting me. And it's also because communication modalities, if I have sensory disabilities, are not easily accessible that I can't communicate with you. So you overcome these communicational, attitudinal, and architectural barriers, and the disabled cease to be disabled. They're just different. So in that sense, disability becomes like other categories, a collective identity. And it's, um, it's you know, um, there's a transformation from looking at it as an individual problem to conceptualizing it as a social problem and a social issue with socially, socially backed solutions. And hence, that is where the uh, whole issue of activism and advocacy comes, that if people with disabilities band together, put pressure, like uh, become a pressure group, like other groups, they can push their policies through. But it's more difficult to get disabled people together to act, be activists and all than women and, uh, you know, other marginalized groups. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And... You, you've already mentioned that in, quote, majority of cases, medicalization helps in maintaining the status quo by working against the claims of the petitioner, end quote. Can you expand on this, uh, particularly on the role that medicalization plays in understanding, discerning disability? Right. So that's, uh, that's your medical legal, medical legal domain. And you know, the medical legal domain are both um, macro you know, structures, power structures in society. 
both from the medicine and law and very often they collaborate people who occupy the positions are often very traditional in their thinking so there's a whole social analysis we can do of these two institutions you know in terms of their dynamics in terms of their operation in terms of their power and in terms of you know how they function and very often they function in tandem and uh, we see this a lot in disability legislation that involve people with disabilities because if you go back what is disability in society is actually something that has its origin in the medical discourse like you are considered disabled if your vision is or if your hearing is below a certain level now if you're above that level you're not considered disabled so someone with a 40% visual impairment is that is called benchmark disability that is the lower limit of disability so that if you are doctors classic only a doctor can make this uh, judgment and give you a medical certificate or a disability certificate so if you are 30% visually disabled you have a visual problem you can be corrected through glasses but you're not visually disabled you can't get the benefits of of the disability nor can you self identify as disabled and that goes across all disabilities so the very definitional nature of disability which comes up for discussion in the courtroom is actually predetermined by a doctor right so you can see that the judge is not determining whether x is disabled or not he is relying on the on the disability certificate issued by the doctor although of course it happens that in one case a doctor may certify someone as 50% disabled and another doctor may certify the same person as 70% disabled although there are criteria you know these criteria are subject to you know, human interpretation and hence there may be a disagreement there and there is nothing to prevent a judge from questioning the doctor's judgment on the basis of his own assessment called from other sources but these are rare by and large the doctor's judgment is taken as evidence in the courtroom you really need a very innovative judge to talk about a medical uh, you know a sorry a judicial interpretation of disability which does not or which contests the existing um, definition offered by the medical practitioner right right and what do you think the role that your research can play in addressing inequity within and outside institutions well uh, i think my very presence in institutions itself has a has an impact in institutions i think especially after 2006 and since i've been in cws i think it's really molded the agenda of the institution because i'm not going to you know wallflower and sink into the background and uh, i think it's uh, it's become a real core issue at cws now and uh, it will remain a core issue even when i leave because i have done enough foundational work to ensure that it does remain so and then you know i have also conf- uh, written when i've published i've made a conscious effort not to publish at in disability journals and books i mean i've tried to be uh, move beyond that 
you know, and you know, no point speaking to the converted. So Disability in Society is a very reputed journal. It's a very good journal, but I've never really published in a lot of choice because I want to publish where people who are non-disabled, who have no understanding, no concern, very, uh, you know, probably are, uh, you know, driven by stereotypes and negativity. I want them to listen. No point talking to the disabled. They already know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, the the next and final question I have is is a little more future looking, and it's uh, you know about some of the unanswered questions that you would like to explore with your future work. So one of the un- unanswered or one of the questions or issues that continues to like, that that will continue to engage me is you know the relationship between disability and medicine, the medical profession, it's because you know. Medicine is actually very important for people with disabilities. I have uh, my visual impairment. One of the reasons for my visual impairment is glaucoma, which is uh, you know elevated eye pressure, which if uncontrolled can lead into you know irreparable visual loss. And I use around seven eight medicines to control it. I'm very happy that I'm it's able to be controlled through these medicines. So I'm constantly engaged with the medical profession, and it's not always a negative experience. So I want to actually engage with the with medicine as both a tool of uh, in a, as an enabler for people with disabilities to lead uh, comfortable lives and as uh, as, a, as a as a as a factor in their disempowerment. That's one very important issue that I really would like to deal with. Then the other thing that I'm interested in is the category of disability. You know that um, it's a heterogeneous category. It's not like women or it's not like Dalit, you know, one supreme identity that you can identify, then it has variegated kind of manifestations, you know, in terms of uh, other variables. But disability is so different. I mean, someone who is schizophrenic is so different from someone who's suffering from polio, and yet both are disabled. And, and, you know, to me, the issue is, is it valid or legitimate is the how valid and legitimate is the category of disability itself? You know, it's this umbrella, but how stable is that umbrella? And given, especially in the context that, uh, you know, many, for example, autoimmune conditions are disabling in parts of the world. In parts of the world, HIV AIDS is considered a disability. In parts of the world, cardiovascular disease and diabetes are considered as disabilities. Uh, some people would even like to consider pregnancy as a temporary disability. So given this kind of spread of potential, I'm wondering how useful the category is. That's another issue that continues to engage me. And then, um, you know, this whole thing of within civil society, you know, why is it the transgenders would want, or, you know, the sexuality rights movement would want to deploy that category to say people who are, you know, for example, different in their sexual uh, approach can be disabled in society, should be considered as disabled. Or why do, you know, in the earlier discourses, being a woman, we often heard this thing, being a woman is a disability. So, you know, I mean, uh, how do these other marginalized groups or Dalits, you know, being Dalit is a disability that is often heard. I mean, is that just a flippant use or... I mean, how are they configuring disability? And to me, that comes to this, again, back to the second question is how stable is the category of disability? 
And I think thirdly, another issue that is the given in the face of the new genetic research that's coming up with the you know huge uh, uh, you know research on you know um, stem cells and on chromosomal you know um, the research at the chromosomal and at the, you know that level and the possibility of tweaking you know. Are we going to see an end to disabling conditions? Is every human being in a in you know fifty years are they everybody going to look beautiful and you know that social standard is going to be applied to everybody? And what do we do with variation? And how to valorize variation? I mean, what is the? I mean, the fact that I have a visual disability. Can I imagine myself as Reno, who was without a visual disability? I can't because it's so entrenched as a part of my um, personality. But then if I think in terms, if my parents, uh, when I was going to be born and they knew that I would have this visual disability, if it's identified, would they have wanted me or would they have chosen, uh, you know, feticide as a preferred mode? And I, I don't know, you know, and it, it is disturbing. So, you know, these are also, there's a huge ethical question when one engages with disability, particularly when one engages with disability and medicine. And I think these issues um, interest me and I would probably want to carry on doing research with them if the opportunity arises. Renu, thank you so much for joining us on Research Radio. I think we've gone beyond the work you've published in EPW and there was a lot to learn. Um, it's been absolutely my pleasure and you know talking also clarifies and it's like listening to yourself and you get to know a lot and more about yourself. Something that stuck with me from what Renu had to say was about how policies treat disability as a personal tragedy or as a problem that resides within an individual rather than the architecture and social mindsets around us. Renu also goes into granular depth into legal cases and I recommend reading her article titled Disability Law in India, Paradigm Shift or Evolving Discourse, published in EPW. I've shared a link to it in the description of this podcast. Next week, we'll speak to Balmurli Natarajan and Sura Jacob about vegetarianism and meat-eating in India. The two of them have detailed how, quote, Characterizing India as a vegetarian land is a gross misrepresentation of reality, end quote. So there's clearly a lot for us to unpack just in that quote right there. And if this sounds interesting to you, do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss out on it. Thanks for tuning in. Take care and I'll see you next week.